Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hola, and welcome to New Books and Latino Studies, a channel within the New Books Network. I am your host, Tiffany Gonzalez, a PhD candidate in history at Texas A&M University. Today on the program, we have Dr. Gabriela Gonzalez, an associate professor in the Department of History at the University of Texas at San Antonio. Dr. Gonzalez is here to discuss her award-winning book, Redeeming La Raza, Transborder Modernity, Race, Respectability, and Rights, published with Oxford University Press in 2018. Her research and writing focus on Chicana and Chicano history, U.S.-Mexico borderlands, gender studies, social and political history. Hello, hello, Gabriela, and welcome to New Books in Latino Studies. I'm so happy to hear from you. We recently met at the Western History Association meeting this past year, and I remember being in awe to finally meet you. I've read your work on transport activism titled Carolina Munquilla and Emma Tenayuca, The Politics of Benevolence and Radical Reform, Reform in My Earlier Graduate Years. Your recent publication really brings a larger picture of the early activism into perspective of what I read in graduate school and my early training. So thank you for joining us today. It's such a great pleasure to have you on here with us. Thank you so much, Tiffany, for inviting me. It's a pleasure for me to be speaking with you today about the book. And I want to also thank New Books Network for this terrific opportunity. Absolutely. So I want to start off by asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us about your personal and professional background. Yes, I was born and raised in the border community of Laredo, Texas, and I attended public schools up to the sixth grade. In the seventh grade, my parents enrolled me in a private Catholic school, St. Augustine Middle and High School. When I graduated from high school, I attended the University of Texas at Austin, where I was actually a business and advertising major, obtaining my Bachelor of Science degree in advertising. I worked in the business world for about a year, and it was while doing so that I came to the realization that I wasn't happy on a professional level, that actually I was yearning for something else. To be quite frank, the the reason I had decided to major in business and in advertising was because I wanted to make money so that I could help my working class parents and brothers and sisters. I am the firstborn of a family of six children. And so that was a high priority for me. But once I was enmeshed in that world, um, there was, I don't know, a, a sense of emptiness. Plus, there was an incident that happened in the workplace that I feel was a turning point for me. I witnessed the unfair firing of a Latina uh, by a white female manager. And it was very disturbing the way that went down. I won't get into the details of that, but suffice it to say that it reminded me that I had always really been interested in human dynamics. And having grown up in Laredo, which in many ways the people from Laredo historically have been sheltered from some of the worst elements of racial discrimination in this country. And yet, since childhood through adolescence, I had been 
without understanding what I was doing, because I certainly didn't have the language, I had been essentially conducting sociological observations about society that ultimately deal with class, race, gender issues. And so it hit me uh, while I was experiencing that high level of, of distress and dissatisfaction in my job that I needed to return to school and I needed to truly focus on uh, humanities, liberal arts studies. And so I decided to enroll in graduate school. And I was now a student again. This time uh, I was at the University of Texas at San Antonio, where I earned my, my master's degree. I was mentored there by a, a good group of people, Dr. Linda Schott, Dr. Linda Pritchard, uh, women's uh, studies scholars, uh, Dr. Jack Reynolds, a political scientist, political historian, as well as uh, Dr. Cynthia Orozco, who was a visiting professor at UTSA during that period. She introduced me to Chicano Chicana history. Uh, she introduced me to the broader histories of Latinos in the United States. She also introduced me to the University of Texas at Austin Benson uh, library collections in Mexican-American, Latin American studies. So that was very important. I also met Dr. Antonia Castañeda during my time at UTSA. I worked for her as a research assistant at the Institute of Texan Cultures. At the time, she was a professor at UT Austin. And basically, I was hired to help her organize some Spanish colonial era files. And so meeting all of these people uh, was quite uh, life-changing for me, and it allowed me to see that I could actually make a living by studying history and teaching it and writing about it and all the things that I was attracted to that I would have done for free anyway. Now I could actually develop a career uh, emphasizing basically the thinking life. So I thought, wonderful. And I was encouraged to apply for various PhD programs across the nation. I applied to about eight or nine, got into all of them, but ultimately decided to attend Stanford University in California because that's where professors Al Camarillo, Albert Camarillo, and Estelle Friedman were teaching. And I had been following their work for some time and admired their work. And I knew that they would be wonderful mentors for me. So that's basically how I ended up at Stanford University. And I graduated from Stanford in the year uh, 2005. I completed the dissertation at the end of 2004, graduated, started my job at uh, UTSA, where I currently teach. And I've been teaching there ever since. I focus on Mexican-American history, borderlands history, women's history, historical methods, Texas history. And I really enjoy it. Great. Yeah. It's always, it's always important to know how the historian came into the craft, right? And so typically what we, what we know is it's the influences around us that has shaped our mindset that led to broader questions about not only who we are, but our environment. And so what I picked up at, on while reading your book on transborder activism in South Texas and Mexico, and it seems that it's also influenced by you growing up in Laredo. Can you tell us why you decided on this topic and how you developed this topic and the initial stages of research for it? Certainly. Well, to go back to Laredo, which is important, in Laredo, again, without having the academic language for it, 
the intellectual concepts to discuss it. Nevertheless, I was a very observant child and teenager. And being afforded the opportunity to attend St. Augustine Middle and High School gave me, I think, uh, the ability to do comparative work. Again, I grew up in a working class neighborhood, but by attending this school, I was able to get glimpses at middle class life, as well as the class of fairly wealthy individuals from Laredo. And so that comparative aspect helped me to understand that when individuals, when families enjoy different levels of socioeconomic resources and status, it will have sometimes uh, an impact in terms of how people's lives develop. In other words, privilege matters. And lack of privilege also matters in determining outcomes. I was very fortunate for a number of reasons. One, my parents were able to obtain some financial aid so that I could even attend this school. And secondly, my parents were willing to go the extra mile, so to speak. At one point, my father had two jobs and my mother was working. And then as soon as I could work, I started working. So between all of us, we were making it work for our family of six children and also you know, being able to pay my tuition and my sister's tuition. There were two of us at the time who were enrolled at St. Augustine. And so that understanding of the importance of education, because my parents always instilled it in me that I needed to uh, study so that I would have a better opportunity to, uh, to do well in the world, to obtain higher paying jobs maybe a a job that would not involve me being out working in the hot sun all day and that sort of thing. Uh, So you see, one thing that's interesting is that my father had been a migrant child during the 1950s and 60s. And so he had lived that uh, dire working class experience that so many ethnic Mexicans in this country and their families have been through. And that is the oppressive environment in the agricultural fields. So from him, I knew about that experience, as well as, um, you know, my father had had been a soldier in Vietnam. And so through him, I knew about the, the tragedy of, you know, that was part of American imperialistic designs at times. And so without actually being a student of history as a youngster, through the lived experiences of my parents. And of course, my mother was a Mexican immigrant, so I knew about her ex- the Mexican immigrant experience from her story. So just from my own house, I was getting excellent history lessons. And in addition, like I said, from my school environment, I was able to compare my experience and that of my parents to the experiences of other Laredo families. I was also able to analyze gender because even though as a, as a young woman, I was never told not to study or not to progress, nevertheless, I could see that sometimes in the rather conservative society that Laredo can be at times, I could see distinctions in the rules that were applied to young men and young women. Everything from how we were supposed to dress to how we were supposed to behave. And just the constant admonition of, uh, you know, portate como una dama, behave like a good young lady and that sort of thing. Or 
um, more broadly as applied to both young men and women, portense como la gente decente, behave like decent people. So those respectability politics were right there in my own upbringing and in my school environment. Um, again, even before I went to the first archive to examine this, um, what one, one might call middle-class politics, although certainly the politics of respectability can be seen uh, at various times, even among working-class environments. Yep. Absolutely. Thank you. Sure. So in reading your book, the book itself fills important gaps within, within the historiographies of Latino history, civil rights, and gender politics in the early 20th, 20th century. Much of the research has focused around the working class, but you deviate from this, right? You highlight how middle-class Mexican immigrants and Mexican-Americans aided in modernizing La Raza through trans-border activism centered around rights. Can you tell us more about this? How do they mobilize or influence people in modernizing La Raza? What does that mean? Sure. So the first three chapters of the book focus on a period from about 1900 to 1929. So we know that 1929 is a milestone in Mexican-American history because that's the founding of LULAC. So prior to that, we see ethnic Mexicans who are heavily, heavily involved in various forms of activism. In other words, what we would call a civil rights movement predates LULAC, certainly predates the Chicano-Chicano movement. So it's very important to understand there's a long historical trajectory of both Mexican immigrants and Mexican-Americans working mightily to overcome the various obstacles that they are facing within American, the United States of America. So that's very important. One thing that it's also important to highlight is that within the middle class, you find all kinds of privileges. Now, the middle class, in terms of ethnic Mexican communities, does not enjoy the level of privileges that Anglo-American middle classes enjoy. And this is pointed out by Cynthia Rosco in her wonderful book. Nevertheless, what privileges they do have advantage them in significant ways from their working class counterparts. For example, the Idar family, they enjoyed considerable uh, privileges. Nicasio Idar himself, the patriarch who was born in the 1850s, he was self-taught. He was self-educated. He had been through very difficult times. At one point, he had worked for the King Ranch. And so more than likely, he knew what it, he had experienced, probably mistreatment that other ethnic Mexicans or Tejanos at the time were experiencing. Nevertheless, despite all of this suffering that he went through, he was able to elevate himself, educate himself to such a degree that he developed certain skill sets that, again, represent a privilege. Um, he, he married Jovita Vivero from a borderlands community. Her father was a Methodist minister within Mexican society, and he actually traveled to various communities. So he was introduced to Methodism through marriage, and they had several children that they decided to raise in Laredo, even though at times he would be in Mexico working in the railroad yards and organizing workers in Mexico. Back in Laredo, when he was finally able to retire from railroad work, he emerges as a leader. 
He is a political leader in the sense that he serves as justice of the peace at one point as city marshal. He is a, uh, a Freemason. I believe at the time that he passed away, he was already 30, 32nd or 33rd degree. He was a leader within mutualistas, mutual aid societies, and other such organizations. And he dabbled in real estate. He had a cigar company that, I'm sorry, cigarette company that his wife helped to manage. In other words, they had um, certain resources and I would say sociocultural capital that they had been building in the city of Laredo where they certainly had more opportunities than it than if they had settled, for instance, in West Texas in 1900, 1910, around this time is, is the time that I'm referencing. And so within Laredo, which was predominantly ethnic Mexican, and where there were some Anglo-Americans, but several of them had intermarried into the elite Spanish-Mexican families, where there was a greater sense of biculturalism, uh, of bilingualism, the, that family was able to flourish, and both uh, Nicasio and his wife, Jovita, strongly encouraged their children to obtain an education. And in fact, the first three, so that would be Clemente, Jovita, and Eduardo Idar, um, were shepherded through that educational process really carefully by the elder Idar. And they attended the Laredo Seminary, which later became Holding Institute. It was founded by Nanny B. Holding, a a Methodist missionary from Kentucky. So through that kind of education, they were able to be influenced by Anglo-American norms. But at the same time, because their father was heavily influential in their upbringing, they were also influ- influenced by ideas uh, coming out of Mexico, Mexi- Mexican liberal ideas that were part of the world of Mexican Freemasonry. And so I feel they were really influenced by both um, gente decente norms coming out of Mexico, but also progressive era ideas uh, about progress, about en- enlightenment issues, about crafting a better world, and the like. And so the greater privileges, I think, is very important part of the story in understanding what they were doing and why they were doing it. And what specifically they were doing is they were developing these mutual aid societies. And the mutual aid societies, we tend to associate, of course, with a self-help ideology of people pulling their resources together so that in time and need, if a member loses, say, uh, somebody from their family, they will be helped by the organization. If the community as a whole is being attacked, for instance, there were a great number of lynchings of ethnic Mexicans during the early part of the 20th century in South Texas. There was a period that was even known as La Matanza, where both everyday men who were part of posses, vigilante committees, as well as organized authorities such as the Texas Rangers, sheriff departments. Basically, they were attacking ethnic Mexican men, sometimes shooting first, asking the questions later, or not asking the questions at all, and assuming that many ethnic Mexican people were dangerous bandidos, um, 
And this is very similar to the anti-Mexican sentiments of an earlier period in the 19th century, where some Tejanos were seen as little Santa Anas walking around as a perpetual threat to the new Anglo-Texan environment uh, society that had been created in the aftermath of Mexico's loss to the United States in terms of the U.S.-Mexico war and prior to that, the loss of Tejas. So that history of racism is not just 20th century phenomena. You have to go back to the 20th century, to the major events of that period. And yes, to American imperialism in terms of its relationship with the Spanish-speaking world and their sense of manifest destiny, their sense of entitlement to these lands and to the labor of the people living on these lands. And so when you when you talk about middle class, educated people like the Idars, the transporter activists, as I like to call them in the book, you have to understand that they know this history. They are aware that every time an ethnic Mexican person is lynched or segregated or maligned in any way, the United States Constitution is being violated, certainly because the 14th and 15th Amendments are not being honored, right? Their voting rights uh, are being taken away through the white primary, for instance, uh, through the poll taxes, but also th- through the institution of political machines that ultimately exploit ethnic Mexican people. And their s- civil rights for those born within Texas are being violated. But in addition to that, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo is being violated as well. The treaty that had assured them that their property rights and their overall civil rights would be respected, that they would become integrated within the United States. All of that is being violated. For Mexican immigrants, their human rights, broadly speaking, are being violated whenever they're mistreated by uh, Anglo-Texan authorities or everyday men and women who decide to discriminate against them. And so they are bringing their significant privileges to that arena being presented by these significant challenges of violence and discrimination. And through organizations like the Mutualistas, but later on through more organized efforts, more broad-based efforts like El Primer Congreso Mexicanista of 1911, the first Mexicanist Congress, as well as through their Spanish language newspapers, through all of these mechanisms, they're trying to raise awareness and consciousness, which is very important. And secondly, they're trying to unify ethnic Mexicans of whatever their birth might be, whether born in Mexico or in Texas, trying to get everybody to be organized and to work together for the greater good of destroying Jim Crow, or as I refer it to it in the book, Jaime Crow. And, and mm-hmm. also Juan Crow is used in the literature as well to refer to this apartheid system. Yes. Thank you. And it is, I mean, they're using, you also talk about how they're using different strategies. It was just not all one um, unified strategy to create this change and an awareness and consciousness. But in chapters one and two, you start, you do start talking about um, the very dimensions of this middle-class activism and how the gendered variations and how women carved out spaces for themselves within male-centered politics. Can you talk a little bit about more about that as well. Absolutely. Of the differences of what's going on within with this activism between men and women. Yes, that's an excellent question. So one of the big themes in the book is 
this concept of maternal feminism, which appears in the literature and women's history, more broadly speaking, for European-American women as well as African-American women. So within ethnic Mexican communities, you do see some evidence of that. And I'll give you a couple of examples. Leonor Villegas de Magnon, who was from the border, who came from a fairly wealthy family and was educated. During the time of the Mexican Revolution, as the Mexican Revolution is starting to develop, aligns herself with the democratically oriented Francisco Madero, with the Maderistas. And she starts writing articles in favor of Maderismo. Later on, we know uh, Francisco Madero will be assassinated. Pino Suarez, his vice president, will be assassinated. And the dictator, Victoriano Huerta, is going to be in charge of Mexico for a while. And then Venustiano Carranza and others are going to try to basically get rid of the usurper Huerta. So when that starts to happen, when Venustiano Carranza from the north, like uh, Francisco Madero, starts to develop his own revolutionary agenda, Leonor Villegas de, de Magnon is ideologically and politically affiliated, connected to Carrancismo, constitutionalismo, to the constitutionalist element of the Mexican Revolution. And when there's a battle... 1913 in Nuevo Laredo, right across from Laredo, she immediately responds to that crisis by organizing herself and her friends into a makeshift medical brigade. And they make their way across that uh, international uh, bridge to try to help the fallen Carrancista soldiers who are not being tended to by the Mexican Red Cross. The Mexican Red Cross is acting as a partisan organization in favor of the federales, the huertistas who hold the city and are being attacked by the carrancistas, by the rebels. And so she's on the side of the rebels. And that's where uh, she first becomes, you might say, physically active in the Mexican Revolution because she had been writing those articles all along. So once she decides to do that, you start to see the use of this maternal feminism as a way to explain her activism, which is something the men don't have to do. Men, the men of that period, if, if they are in favor of this faction or that faction, they just join. But for the women, they sort of position themselves as mothers of, of the nation seeking to rebirth a more democratic Mexico. So that language of maternal obligation is embedded within their writings. And it helps for them to basically create for themselves a place within patriarchy, a place within this uh, war-torn world from where they can operate as wives, as mothers, as women invested in this project of what amounts to politicized domesticity, where it's not even a choice. They feel they have an obligation to go out there and be part of the revolution. Now, in terms of the Magonistas, so she's from the privileged sector, right? Among, yes. among the Magonistas, the followers of Ricardo Flores Magón, Enrique Flores Magón, you also have a lot of women who are not just themselves deciding to join, but sometimes they're even recruited by the men to be a part of the revolution. The revolution needs both men and women, of course. 
And so you have, for instance, uh, Sara Estela Ramirez, who also is living in Laredo around this time period. She is working as a school teacher for the Laredo Seminary. And she's also writing poetry and commentary type articles for La Cronica and other newspapers, uh, not just in Laredo, but newspapers elsewhere, like in Mexico. And she also sees herself as somebody who has an obligation to contribute, to participate. She probably was not using the same language, say necessarily, as, as Leonor Villegas de Magnon, but there was this understanding that uh, just because she was a woman didn't mean that she, need, that she was going to sit out the revolution. And in fact, she didn't. She was heavily active. Uh, and like I said, she was a follower of Ricardo Flores Magón. Later on, there's a fallout with Ricardo Flores Magón, and, and she uh, aligns herself with a more moderate uh, element uh, of the Ponciano Ariaga Liberal Club. Uh, I believe the name of the gentleman was Camilo Ariaga that she followed to San Antonio. So there was, you know, some dissent. Not everybody was following Ricardo Flores Magón unquestioningly. And Ricardo Flores Magón, in terms of the Mexican Revolution, uh, had a more, I would say, radical and militant critique of not just the Mexican government per se or the American government per se, but global capitalism, broadly speaking, and how it was actually the, the broader oppressive force that was inspiring these governments to act in repressive ways towards the common people. So his critique is more akin to a modern 21st century critique of global capitalism that, that we witness uh, nowadays. So you might say on some level he was ahead of his time, and um, the gente decente, while they were heavily critical of racial discrimination, of the lynchings and all of that, and on some level they were critical of economic exploitation, from the evidence that I've seen, they never took it as far as the Magonistas did. And so I bring this up because the women themselves were also heavily influenced by the more radical aspects of transporter politics as well as the more moderate to conservative aspects. Yes. And you continue that within the next section, within chapters four and five, but you also bring in the stark differences within the politics of gente decente and the gender politics with the stories of um, the Munquilla family and Emma de Nayuca. And these, these chapters really create the differences of what is going on with middle class um, demographic and how are they creating and fighting for civil rights. What I found interesting is that you also bring in discussion about how the women within the Munquilla family developed the Spanish speaking PTAs, mm-hmm. right? And how, how their ideologies of, for the working class was molded around middle class respectability politics, sensibilities. You want to talk a little bit about those stark differences and what, how their initiatives and what they were thinking and their ideologies for activism changed or evolved or were similar in some ways. Certainly. So in the same way that there are some differences between the Magonistas, men and women, uh, versus uh, the gente decente, such as the Dars and the Freemasons and, and, and others, there's also stark differences a few years later between the respectability politics of the Munguia family versus the more radical uh, militant labor politics of 
somebody like Emma Tenayuca and the Workers Alliance and the Pecan Shellers. So during the 1920s, first of all, the Munguia family arrives in San Antonio as political exiles in the mid-1920s. First Romulo, and then he sends for his wife and children once they sell whatever property they have and he finds a job and so on. And, and so they enter American society as the latter part of that uh, Mexico-Lindo generation that is escaping violence and destruction connected to the Mexican Revolution. They're, they're part of that diaspora. And here in San Antonio, Romulo Munguia quickly establishes himself. He, um, he was self-taught, similar to Nicasio Idar, very intelligent, very hardworking, self-taught. And he at first starts working for La Prensa. Later on, he develops his own business, Munguia Printers, which was operational for some 50, 60 years. I forget how many, but for a long, long time. And once he is economically stable, he starts to get involved in the community in various ways. And he starts to work with the Mexican consulate office to try to help Los Mexicanos de Afuera, the Mexicans in exiles. So that's one way that he continues uh, to be connected to Mexico. And he starts to participate in what we would call a transborder activism, a transborder politics. He definitely is living in the United States and he is keeping up with things here, but he is also invested in what's going on in Mexico. And he's trying to help people living in Westside San Antonio, Spanish-speaking people, ethnic Mexican people who are experiencing poverty and racial discrimination in this community. His wife, Carolina, um, is raising seven children, but uh, in addition to that, she becomes involved in women's voluntary associations, and in fact, she creates one of her own, uh, El Círculo Cultural Isabela la Católica, and she's heavily involved in trying to bring resources to Westside San Antonio, legal aid, free legal, legal services, free medical service, haircuts for the children, uh, tr- food baskets, um, various charitable organizations, and she's connected to the Mexican government. I give an example in that chapter where I talk about how she wrote letters to Mex- Mexican governors asking them for representative handicrafts from their sp- specific Mexican state because she basically wants to create um, basically like social programming whereby she can educate San Antonio's Tejano and Mexican immigrant community about Mexican cultural elements, art forms, history, geography. And so this kind of programming she is crafting in tandem with the Mexican consular offices, but also directly with officials within Mexico that she is in correspondence with. So that's very important because it shows that both Romulo and Carolina were practicing a form of Mexican cultural nationalism. At the same time that they are doing this, they are exhorting people, strongly encouraging people to learn English, to send their children to school, to help them as much as possible adapt and survive and perhaps even thrive in American society. And that's where the Spanish-speaking PTA comes in. The Spanish-speaking PTA was a program that LULAC was encouraging, and she worked with LULAC 
to develop a Spanish-speaking PTA in Crockett Elementary School, but later on she was involved in other Spanish-speaking PTAs beyond Crockett. And the main objectives, the number one objective of the Spanish-speaking PTA was to serve as a vehicle through which Spanish-speaking mothers could connect with English-speaking teachers and administrators. There was a language disconnect. The uh, PTA in many of these schools was not very appealing to ethnic Mexican women because there was no effort to provide a bilingual arm to the PTA or there was no effort really to recruit people, to invite them in. Um, And so Carolina Munguia felt that she needed to be proactive and basically create a Spanish-speaking PTA where the mothers would feel comfortable, where she could provide, she she herself could serve as an intermediary between these two worlds of Spanish-speaking mothers versus uh, Anglo-American teachers and administrators. And she was very successful at doing that. And in fact, very uh, intelligently, she um, basically... She basically gave uh, an honorary membership to the school principal at Crockett, to Herman Hirsch, asking him to be a part of the Spanish-speaking PTA. And, and he decided, yes, he wanted to do that. And he is pictured in one of the photographs. And she invited the teachers to be a part of the Spanish PTA. So here she is sort of being um, a, a Mexican uh, enthusiast, so to speak, uh, a cultural nationalist, but at the same time, she has no problem with adapting to American uh, social norms and picking up the English language and all of that. And she's following an ideology of the gente decente, of middle class respectability politics, because she's doing all this through the system itself, right? She's not directly challenging the system, she's working within the system to change the system. So it's kind of subtle, mm-hmm. right? She's still trying to dismantle Jim Crow or Juan Crow, Jaime Crow, but she's doing it within the system itself uh, in a way that is seen as appropriate for a woman of her education and socioeconomic class. Now, let's contrast that with Emma Tenayuca. Emma Tenayuca was a Tejana. Her family had been, on on her mother's side, her family had been here for several generations. And her mother's family tended to associate more with with a Spanish-Mexican experience. Her father was seen as as more working class. And sometimes some members of, of her mother's family did not necessarily always get along with the father, whom they considered to be uh, inferior. They used to talk about him as being puro indio. And this I talk about in the book, and I think it's important because we see that young Emma Tenayuca is noticing within her own household the legacies of the Spanish colonial experience, as well as the current Jim Crow structure that surrounds them. In other words, racism. Racism is everywhere. It's not just Anglos directing it at ethnic Mexicans. Within our ethnic Mexican communities, we have elements of racism and colorism that have been part of our history that we need to uh, understand how those dynamics have contributed to the overall 
um, Mexican-American, ethnic Mexican experience. And so at a young age, she noticed that her father was being maligned, uh, talked down to, and so on because of his appearance. And it inspired her to be on the side of the underdog in society because she took her father's side. She was very upset that they were directing insults at him simply because of the color of his skin. So that sense of injustice was something that she was noticing even before uh, any of her activist work. Also influencing her were a couple of things. One, she was very well read. And so she had a sense of global history, not just U.S. history or Mexican history, but global history. And she had read the works of Karl Marx and Tolstoy and others. And she knew about human struggles for freedom beyond the United States. So that, of course, is going to be instrumental in helping her develop as an activist. She's also living in the 1930s, during a time when the United States was experiencing its Great Depression. And ethnic Mexican people were scapegoated heavily, and we have the repatriation deportation drives that affected many, many families across the American Southwest and probably elsewhere. And so this is something that she's witnessing and that she tries to stop in various ways as a leader within the Workers' Alliance and understanding that any time ethnic Mexican workers join labor movements to call for their labor rights, their human rights, their economic rights, they are susceptible to being deported by local authorities who are going to call them un-American and, you, you know, and ask them to go back to your country and that kind of thing. In addition to that, she is influenced by the Communist Party. And why the Communist Party? Because at that time, the Communist Party was one of the few organizations in the United States that was actively trying to fight against racial discrimination and to try to help um, ethnic Mexican people as well as African Americans organize. There were many labor unions that were racist and would not organize people of color. And so there's a very real practical reason, as well as ideological reason, why Ematenayekwa was attracted to the Communist Party. On the ideological level, the Communist Party, the Popular Front in specifically, was aligning themselves with the better elements of New Deal liberalism, this idea of a safety net for all Americans. The stock market crash was not the fault of ordinary Americans. The stock market crash was the result of the decisions of the political and economic elites in the United States that had allowed a huge gap to grow between the rich and the poor, that had allowed for a significant period of time where increasingly less and less Americans were able to participate in the consumer market, and that was going to have an impact. There were also international implications going back to World War I that also paved the way leading up to the Great Depression. So all of these decisions leading up to economic catastrophe were the responsibility of leadership, not rank-and-file workers in factories, not people of color, not immigrants. And Emma Tenayuka was fully aware of that. So when Franklin Delano Roosevelt and his associates put together uh, the New Deal, and you start to see this idea of New Deal liberalism take shape, 
there's a sense in which Emma Tenayuka feels that finally we have here a political leader who is starting to understand how working class people of all ethnicities have been negatively impacted by the decisions of the elites. And so this is something that the popular front um, elements of the Communist Party in the United States, this is something they could latch on to. And that's what uh, Emma Tenayuka was interested in. She wasn't a Stalinist or anything of that nature. She would later be red-baited. She would later be attacked by authorities in San Antonio, by the police department, by the sheriff's department, even by the Catholic Church for a period of time as being un-American because, simply because she was communist. But nobody stopped to examine and analyze why she was a member of the Communist Party and what aspects of the Communist Party she was really trying to promote in other words, her main, uh, her MO, modus operandi, essentially was to do what was necessary to promote human rights for the people, to promote labor rights. And she was willing to march in the streets. She was willing to storm the mayor's office, to have protests right in front of City Hall. She had no problem being in the newspaper. She was arrested a few times. That's a very different way of doing things than what Carolina Munguia was doing. Carolina Munguia was following a maternal feminist, gente decente, um, you know, ideology and set of tactics, whereas Emma Tenayuca was being, you know, in your face, so to speak, and more militant and more direct in her critiques of these various oppressive structures. Yes. Matanico is more getting to the root of the issues of the larger issues. That's why certain things are affecting the Mexican American, Mexican demographic and in Texas. Right. And so that was a really, really sharp discussion there within those two chapters that really brought out the differences in the strategies that the activists used for, as you say, redeeming La Raza. Mm-hmm. Um, a question that I have that popped into my head as I was also reading the book was the topic of religion. You touch on it frequently, right? Your book, you we not we read not only about Catholics, but Methodist Mexicans using their religious ideologies for uplifting La Raza. How important was religion but for as a strategical use for civil rights activism? I think it was very important, but the story actually begins in Mexico uh, in terms of the gente decente. From the time of La Reforma, all right, so now here we go into the discussion of Benito Juarez. Benito Juarez and his followers, one of their main critiques was that the Catholic Church over time had become extremely powerful and influential within Mexican society to such a degree that it was preventing a truly democratic system from developing. It was basically competing with the government. Um, And so Mexico had been fractured, unfortunately, in the 19th century into uh, a federalist liberal faction versus a conservative centralist faction. The conservative centralists were interested in keeping as many of the old-time institutions in power as possible. They wanted a strong military. They wanted a strong Catholic church. And they wanted a strong centralized government. In other words, power uh, stemming from Mexico City would predominate across the young nation. The Federalists 
or liberals um, were interested in having a constitution uh, of having basically something similar to the American constitution where there would be divisions of power, where there would be a sense of decentralization of checks and balances and the like, and where people at the local level would, would have a greater sense of autonomy, that they would be represented in various governing bodies at the local, state, and national level. And we know from Mexican history that there were uh, various conflicts between the two broad overarching factions leading to um, political assassinations and a certain level of political instability. Then we have the tragedy of the great loss of Mexican land to the United States uh, that further created problems. Then we have the invasion of the French, um, which, you know, going back to Benito Juarez, he, he enters into the story in part as, as we're, we know him as the liberator of Mexico, um, who helped to uh, get rid of that French imperialism. Uh, but in addition to that, in addition to the battles that are part of Mexican history and the political assassinations, we have a country that is uh, where there's competing ideas all the time. And the Dar family and others like them in Laredo, they are the inheritors, I would say, of the Mexican liberal tradition, of that tradition that finds its ancient roots, so to speak, not terribly ancient, but older roots within the Enlightenment, within ideas of uh, the rights of man, right? Ideas about uh, representation, political freedoms, freedom of speech, freedom of association, a legal system that offers a sense of fairness and justice, certain protections and guarantees, um, but also this idea of, of rights, human rights, and to the citizens of the nation, civil rights and all of all of these kinds of concepts were swimming around during this period. They were being debated in Spanish language newspapers, both in Mexico and across the American Southwest. And so that's very much a part of the story that um, there's this anti-Catholic, anti-clerical element within the Mexican liberal political tradition, because they are so concerned that if they don't control the Catholic Church, the, Cat the Catholic Church ultimately could undermine democratic principles within Mexican society. So that's part of the reason that La Cronica, for instance, gets into this heavy-duty debate with, um, I'm, I'm blanking out on the name of the Catholic uh, newspaper, but it's in the book. They they get into these these uh, ideological political debates with the Catholic Church because they see the, the Catholic Church as a threat and as an oppressive force. Now, Methodism is introduced into Mexican society by missionaries. Missionaries from the United States are making their way to various countries to convert people to Protestantism. There's a very strong anti-Catholic element to some of this Protestant missionary tradition. Just the fact that they are so heavily motivated to try to convert people, that says something about 
what they are doing and why they believe they are doing it. They believe that they need to bring the Mexican people, so to speak, and this is the language that they would have used, not my language, but they would have said that they're got they're trying to bring them out of darkness into the light, for instance. And so some Mexicans do convert or they attend Protestant missionary schools. And so even if they don't convert, they're influenced by some of these ideas, which have certain racialist elements to them. But it's not just race. It's not just about racist. This idea of freedom and liberty and freedom of thought that unfortunately gets enmeshed with ideas about race and the superiority of one culture or one religion over another. And so you might say that uh, on some elements, some of these Protestant missionaries might have some good intentions, but because they are you know, enmeshed with the racist elements of white supremacy, they become heavily problematic. What's interesting with the Edad family is that while they are influenced by Protestantism, specifically Methodism, both through uh, Jovita Idar's grandfather, who was a Methodist minister, but also through the Laredo Seminary Holding Institute, while they are heavily influenced by American Protestant traditions, because they are in a very important struggle to get rid of apartheid to get rid of racism and segregation, they are able to take the best elements of that Protestant influence without adopting its racialist elements. And so that makes them very interesting. I I feel very nuanced and interesting characters to study historically. Yes, yes. And these strategies, as the heart of your argument, all the strategies that each person within these chapters that you've you've written about, the middle class was enhancing or designing a way to create ethnic pride, ethnic. right? That's the heart of it and create unity among Mexican origin people. The different ways, right? Either through the newspaper as you use, the Spanish language newspaper, the being in the masonry, um, the different social... Pro- um, social organizations, the Spanish-speaking PTAs, the different even forms of activism and politics that women women use, like maternalistic or more leading towards radical, more radical in the sense of getting to the root and the heart of the issue, as opposed to just trying to change the individual, the person itself, but changing the larger structure. Um, Absolutely. And what's interesting about that, and I'm glad you bring that up, because they were sort of doing both in a way. So when I use the terminology social redemption, it is to describe exactly what you just mentioned, this idea of dismantling a racialist structure and working from within, right? Through the gente decente ideology, challenging it, but almost working from within. And Lulek's going to do the same thing in terms of using the, the American court system, the legal system, the American political system to change the system from within, as opposed to having a violent revolution, by contrast, for instance. So they're, they're definitely invested in that project of making the world a better place, which, going back to religion, connects us to the social gospel as well, because that was one of the callings of some Protestant traditions 
in both American and Mexican society to go out there and follow um, the agenda of Jesus Christ, which was to do unto others, to make this a better world. So that's also some aspects of religion that are influencing the women in particular, but also some of the men. Now, on the other hand, I do talk about cultural redemption. And how I define that in the book is uh, this idea that transporter activists, in addition to being heavily invested in the destruction, ultimately, of Jim Crow, they were also invested in the material, social, and moral uplifting of ethnic Mexican men and women. And this, I find parallels with the African-American lifting as we climb tradition Mm -hmm. of encouraging education, of encouraging Mm -hmm. sobriety, proper comportment. Of course, there are classist implications, which I problematize in the analysis. Uh, But I definitely think it's important to be aware of, of that the gente decente politics of respectability is, is complex. It, is, it has a very strong liberal, uh, liberation-oriented aspect to it, but it also has some conservative elements to it, I think. Yes, and that's, and that's at the heart of it. You also say that at, towards the end is that La Raza was never unified. It was not a unified entity per se, but a rather imagined community um, that wrote that was constantly in motion and changing for unity through cultivation, through cultivation of ethnic pride and nationalism. And I think that's complicates it, right? That complicates our image of who these historical figures are, who are the middle-class Mexican immigrants, Mexican Americans, and how they're, how they're understanding the world around them within their own privilege, within their own respect, their respect, respectability politics. Sorry. Um, So we're nearing the end of our interview and so I have one last question for you. Sure. What projects are you working on now? Currently, I am working on a biography of Jovita Idar. I find her to be really fascinating. And while we know a great deal about her, there are many gaps in that story. For example, we know that she was involved in Democratic Party politics in San Antonio, that she may have been a precinct captain and you know walked streets in an effort to get people registered. But beyond that, we really don't know much about her involvement or her dynamics with Anglo-Americans within the Democratic Party. So these are all areas that I'm interested in. She was also a member of La Trinidad Methodist Church here in San Antonio, and she played a leadership role. But I would like to know more about that. And and again, how did she deal with the broader San Antonio society? And so that's very important. Of course, as I am learning more about Jovita, I'm learning more about the other members of her family. So in a sense, it's kind of like a political family biography is what is shaping out to be. My, my other project, which I don't have too much on, but I'm interested in, um, citizenship rights and messaging in Spanish and English language media during the 20th century. I've always been interested in um, Univision, Telemundo, that sort of thing. But Prior to that, radio, the use of radio, for instance, Carolina Mundia had a radio program, yes. La Estrella, which was fantastic because I wish I could, you know, find some of these recordings so that I could get a better sense of, again, that uh, the politics of respectability and such. Um, but so I want to dig deep into how the media has been used in the 20th century 
both Spanish language and English language uh, media to to promote human and civil rights, labor rights uh, among ethnic Mexican communities and how they've used the media to address the broader problems impinging upon them. So that would be a a third project. (laughs) Those are so highly needed. written written works that we we need to know about and for all those listening keep an eye out for the Jovita Edad biography um as i was reading um the chapter when you're talking about um the Munquia family Carolina and the radio station um the the oral i guess it was an oral interview or maybe just an oral um transcript that you used of her daughter mm-hmm. Elvira Cisneros yes and I had I had written an article on her for the TSHA, and it just all hit me. I was like, "Yes, this the, the whole family connection." I I really enjoyed bring, being able to read more about it, the larger progression of this family history. Because then we get Hen- Henry Cisneros, who was the first mayor of San Antonio, and then he was at the national, at the federal level, federal level under HUD, right under I think Clinton administration. Yes. So this, this lineage of political lineage is here within within your book, and it hit me, and I was like, wow. And there's another political uh, lineage that's important. Uh, Nicasio Idar, uh, again, and Clemente, his elder son, were the you know the ones who basically the intellectual authors of the Primer Congreso Mexicanista, and then uh, his grandson Eridar Jr., the son of Eduardo was one of the founding members of LULAC and he was involved with MALDEF. And so there's that intergenerational uh, element to it. And in our modern day society, we have, for instance, the Castro brothers and, and, and their yes. activist mother, Rosie Castro, wonderful activist. And so that's important to understand the nature of Mexican-American, ethnic Mexican, uh, human and civil rights movement and the roles of men, women, but also families and communities yes. in this process. It, it shapes, it shapes the consciousness of not, not just the parent or man and a woman, um, but the whole, the whole dynamic, right. And even, even understanding family is more fluid, but the concept of it, of what it means to shape a whole community within the political consciousness goes beyond goes beyond just one circular involvement and that's that's beautiful we look for i look forward to your upcoming projects um and so i want to say thank you for your time for listening for everyone listening and for you gabriela for being on the show today thank you so much tiffany it's been a real pleasure i've enjoyed myself and i encourage people to read redeeming la raza and to read many many more books on the ethnic mexican experience in the united states uh it's always important, but perhaps now more than ever. Yes. So thank you for listening to this episode, which featured Dr. Gonzalez's work, Redeeming La Raza, Transborder, Modernity, Race, Respectability, and Rights, published with Oxford University Press in 2018. If you want to send me a message, you can find me on Twitter. I encourage you to share this episode with fellow podcast listeners and hit a like on Apple Podcast. Hasta la próxima.